Peace and blessings. This is Muslims for Peace podcast. You have tuned into Muslims for Peace podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. Well, here's a good way for me to start off. Whoa. Here's a good way for me to start off an interfaith, for an interfaith gathering, and that is, I'm standing here as an agnostic Jew, talking to a mainly Muslim audience by quoting the founder of Christianity, who of course was not Jesus, but Paul. And this is something, I very rarely agree with Paul, but he wrote this in his letter to the Corinthians, and I think it says it perfectly. The letter kills, the spirit gives life. In other words, literal obedience to the letter of the law is deadly. But the spirit of it, the meaning of it, the poetry of it, the metaphor of it is where it's really at. And that's where for me, as I see it from the outside, and this is of course a view very much from the outside, that's where the magic of it is. So in the spirit, I'd like to do two things this afternoon. First, I'd like to read a few pages from the first Muslim, which as you can tell from the title, is, um, not the usual devotional biography. It's written very much from the outside. It's what I call an agnostic biography. That is, it's written in the spirit that not everything can be known. Not everything is knowable. So it's written in the spirit of inquiry, which is what Sean Stone just talked about, in the spirit of exploration, rather than saying, this is definitely how it was. There's been plenty enough done already about Prophet Muhammad that way, both for and against, and I'm not trying to do that. So I want to start with a few pages from the book, and then I want to, which of course is in the 7th century, Arabia, and then I want to bring it up to something that happened very recently, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago. So, if you weren't standing lonely vigil on the mountain, you might say that there was no sign of anything unusual about him. The earliest sources describe him with infuriating vagueness for those of us who need images. He was neither tall nor short, they say, neither dark nor fair, neither thin nor stout. But here and there, specific details slip through, and when they do, they're surprising. Surely a man spending night after night in solitary meditation would be a gaunt, ascetic vigor. Yet far from being pale and wan, he had round, rosy cheeks and a ruddy complexion. He was stockily built, almost barrel-chested, which may partly account for his distinctive gait, always described as leaning forward slightly as though he were hurrying towards something. And he might have had a stiff neck, because people would remember that when he turned to look at you, he turned his whole body instead of just his head. The only sense in which he was conventionally handsome was his profile, the swooping hawk nose long considered a sign of nobility in the Middle East. On the surface, you might conclude that he was an average Meccan. At 40 years old, sorry. Ah, uh, sound guys. At 40 years old, what about without a mic? <laughs> Can you hear me at the back? 
Okay. I hope this isn't some kind of judgment. <laughs> a 40, no. Son of a man he had never seen. He had made a far better. child born an insider within, sorry, the child born an outsider within his, within his own society had finally won acceptance and, and carved out a good life despite the odds against him. He was comfortably off. <laughs> Either God or the gods is conspiring against this. <laughs> he was comfortably off, a happily married business agent with the respect of his peers, and if he wasn't one of the movers and shakers of his prosperous city, that was precisely why people trusted him, to represent their interests. He'd found a secure niche in the world and had earned every right in middle age to sit back and enjoy his rise to respectability. So what was he doing alone up here on one of the mountains that ringed the sleeping city below? Why? getting eerie. Why would, an, why would a happily married man isolate himself this way, standing in meditation through the night? There was a hint, perhaps, in his clothing. By now he could certainly have afforded the elaborate embroidered silks of the wealthy, but his clothes were low-key. His sandals were worn, the leather thongs sun-bleached, sun paler than his skin. His homespun robe would be almost threadbare if it hadn't been so carefully patched and it was hardly enough to shield him against the nighttime cold of the high desert. Yet something about the way he stood on the mountainside made the cold irrelevant. Tilted slightly forward as though leaning into the wind, his stance seemed that of someone who existed at an angle to the earth. Certainly a man could see the world in a different way up here. He could find peace in the silence, with just the sighing of the wind over the rock for company, far from the feuds and gossip of the city. Here, a man was merely a speck in the mountain landscape, his mind free to think and reflect, and then finally, to stop thinking, stop reflecting, 
and submit itself to the vastness. Look closer and you might detect the shadow of loneliness in the corners of his eyes, something lingering there of the outsider he'd once been, as though he, as though he were haunted by the events, that at any moment everything he'd worked so long and hard for could be taken away. You might see a hint of that same mix of vulnerability and resoluteness in his mouth, the full lips slightly parted as he whispered into the darkness, and then, perhaps, you'd ask why contentment was not enough. Did the fact that it had been so hard-earned make him unable to accept it as a given, never to be secure in his right to it? But then what would? What was he searching for? Was it a certain peace within himself, perhaps? Or was it something more, a glimpse, maybe just an intimation of something larger? That's how the book begins, and I'm going to skip now to chapter 7. And chapter 7, well, early on in the chapter, I actually ask, what actually happened on Mount Hera? And imagine, if you can, this agnostic Jew pacing the floor of her houseboat in Seattle, misty Seattle, for months, trying to answer what she knew was an unanswerable question but just exploring it, haunted by it, gnawing at this question, what actually happened on Mount Hera? We have what appear to be Muhammad's own words, but they come relayed through others at several removes, with each narrator struggling to account, to translate the ineffable into terms they could understand. One account, one account, no, one account is credited to Aisha, the youngest and the most outspoken of the wives he'd marry after Khadija's death. And this is Khad uh, Aisha speaking now, per Ibn Ishaq. He said, when the angel came to me, I'd been standing but I fell to my knees and crawled away, my shoulders trembling. I thought of hurling myself down from a mountain crag, but he appeared to me as I was thinking this and said, Muhammad, I am Gabriel and you are the messenger of God. And then he said, recite. I said, what shall I recite? He took me and pressed me tightly three times until I was nearly stifled and thought that I should die. And then he said, Recite in the name of thy Lord who created, created man from a clot of blood, that thy Lord is the most bountiful who teaches by the word, teaches man what he knew not. The narrative, as in Ibn Ishaq, then continues in words credited to one of Muhammad's future followers, Ibn Zubayr, who again quotes him directly. This is Muhammad speaking now. I recited it and the angel desisted and departed. I woke up, and it was as though these words had been engraved on my heart. But there was none of God's creation more hateful to me than a poet or a madman, and I could not bear to look at either of them, yet I thought I must be either a poet or a madman. But if so, none will ever say this of me. I shall take myself to a mountain cliff, hurl myself down from it, and find respite in death. But when I came near the top of the mountain, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Muhammad, you are the messenger of God. 
I raised my head to see who was speaking, and there Gabriel was in the form of a man with feet astride the horizon. I stood looking at him, and this distracted me from what I had intended, and I could go neither forward nor back. I turned my face away from him to all points of the horizon, but wherever I looked, I saw him in exactly the same form. Now, in Aisha's words, and I quote her, this was a true vision. But the form it took in her mouth and those of others was kind of clumsily flat. These were well-intentioned people trying to find words for a state of being they'd never experienced. And in the process, they simplified it, turning the metaphysical into the merely physical, as in that image of the angel Gabriel straddling the mountains. It's as though the moment itself were cloaked, as though too close an account of what happened that night were beyond human comprehension, which is in fact exactly how Muhammad experienced Which is in fact exactly how Muhammad experienced it. Where his reported words come to life is not in the angelic apparition, but in that palpable feeling of terror that panicked disorientation, that sundering of everything familiar, that feeling of being utterly overwhelmed to the point of near death by a force larger than anything the mind can comprehend. In short, a terrible awe. Now I know this may be difficult to grasp today when the word awesome is used to describe a new app or a viral video with the exception perhaps of a massive earthquake, we're protected from real awe. Few people even know any longer what it's like to stand alone in a thunderstorm on the open plains, or to feel the shore vibrate beneath you as, uh, as a gale sends billions of tons of water pounding in across thousands of miles of ocean. We close the doors and hunker down, convinced that we're in control, or at least hoping for control, and lose touch with what it is to be overwhelmed by a force much greater than ourselves. How then to understand Muhammad's awe? Something that's metaphysical, literally beyond the physical, is by definition beyond rational explanation. But while the attempt to reconstruct mystical experience may well be absurd, that it is, one can at least be a fool, I can at least be a fool for trying, rather than a different kind of fool for not trying. So, Rudolf Otto, the great Victorian scholar of comparative religion, may have come close in his book, The Idea of the Holy. I hope some people here have read it. It's a wonderful book, but it's in this really impassioned Victorian language, as you'll hear. The fear of God in the Hebrew Bible, he wrote, quote unquote, seizes upon man with paralyzing effect. Job, he says, experienced a terror fraught with an inward shuddering such as not even the most menacing and overpowering creative thing can instill. It has something spectral in it. And he really did mean spectral. In ghost stories, he continued, the sense of dread makes you shudder, going so deep that it seems to penetrate the very marrow, making a man's hair bristle and his limbs quake. You can tell that this is Victorian because presumably women's hair doesn't bristle and their limbs don't quake. You can laugh here, it's okay. <laughs> uh, but at its highest level, he wrote, 
Dread reappears in a form ennobled beyond measure, where the soul, held speechless, trembles inwardly to the furthest fiber of its being. Okay, so if we don't need to be as purple prosed as Rudolf Otto, we also we also don't have to be as literal as Aisha and David Zubair. We don't need to insist that Muhammad actually heard Gabriel speaking as though the angel were a human being with a human voice, let alone reduce Muhammad himself to the status of a divinely appointed voice recorder playing back what was dictated to him. Okay, since we're rational products of the 21st century, we could look instead to science for an explanation calling on neuropsychiatry and the idea of altered states of consciousness. Was Muhammad in such an altered state that night? Of course he was. But neurological research has only revealed what ascetics and mystics have always known, that practices such as fasting, sleep deprivation, and intense meditation, and singing, by the way, and dancing, can induce such states, which are accompanied by changes in the brain's chemical activity. The fact that an altered state of consciousness has a physical correlate should come as no surprise, since brain chemistry parallels experiential input. But while science can chart the physical effects of such altered states, it can't enter the experience of them. So in the end, at least for me, the most practical way to pursue the question, what actually happened that night? is the one that at first glance might seem the least practical of all, by making the leap into poetry. Because the essence of religious experience is, at heart, poetic. Ritual and dogma are merely the framework of organized religion. It's girders, as it were. They don't touch on religious experience itself, which is the experience of mystery, of the indescribably enigmatic. Poetry, of course, pivots on the non-enigma, which naturally has not prevented many poets from trying to define it. Nonetheless, Walt Whitman called the beauty of poems the tuft and final applause of science. Coleridge talked of the willing suspension of disbelief for the moment, which constitutes poetic faith. While Ralph Waldo Emerson called poetry the endeavor to express the spirit of the thing. And note, note the words these poets use, faith and spirit. And in fact, the most apt definition of poetry may be the anonymous one, which is saying something that cannot be said, which again is no reason not to try. So if we look at the metaphors in the account of Muhammad on the mountain, it may be possible to at least, for me, begin to understand. Start, then, with the idea of inspiration, which is literally the act of, of breathing in or of being breathed into. The Arabic word for both breath and spirit is ruh, which is close kin to the Hebrew roh. And the idea of having spirit breathed into you is thus built into the language, as it is in the second verse of Genesis, where the breath of God Roch Elohim, lay upon the waters. 
But while this may sound wonderful in principle, consider that a human being is not water. Imagine, if you can, being breathed into, inspired, with such force that your body can hardly bear it. No gentle breath from heaven here, but air being impelled into your lungs under great, immense pressure, as though a giant were giving you mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. It has to feel like every cell of your body is overtaken by it, and you're entirely at its mercy. Even as it gives you life, it seems to be splashing the life out of you, suffocating you under its enormous weight until it's useless to even think of fighting against it. And then consider the real meaning of that phrase of Muhammad's, as though these words were being engraved on my heart. And if this is by now a cliche, Consider it afresh as he used it, and maybe you begin to grasp its impact. Imagine then the unimaginable, the agonizing pain of a sharp blade carving deep inside you as you lie beneath it, conscious but unable even to struggle against it. It has all the violence. There is no unearthly calm here, but the violence of open heart surgery the wrenching apart of the chest, the bearing of the heart, the unutterable pain, all in the name of a new lease on life. Muhammad was left cowering on the ground, depleted. Covered in sweat yet shivering, he was inhabited by those words that were his and yet not his. The words he had repeated out loud into the thin, pure air of the mountain, into the emptiness and into the darkness. Maybe he sensed somewhere, somewhere inside him that these words could only come to life, could only achieve reality. When spoken into the face of, breathed in by another human being, the one person he could run to for cons consolation in the face of this overwhelming force, who could perhaps save him from both the fear of madness and the fear of the divine. Khadija. Or perhaps at first there were no words at all. Perhaps it took time for experience to form into, into something as, as human and tangible as words. We know that we know that he came stumbling down the mountain, slipping and sliding on the loose scree, his breath hot and rasping, each inhalation needing to be struggled for until it felt like his chest would burst with the effort of it. His robe was torn, his arms and legs scratched and bruised by thorns and sharp-edged rocks in the path of his headlong flight for home. I have been in fear for my life, was the first thing he said. I think I must have gone mad. Trembling, shuddering almost convulsively, he begged Khadija to hold him and hide him under her shawl. Cover me, cover me, he pleaded, his head in her lap, like a small child seeking shelter from the terrors of the night. And that terror alone was enough to convince her that what her husband had experienced was real. She held him, cradled him as the night sky began to grow pale in the east with the reassuring prospect of day. Slowly, haltingly, the words he had perhaps felt more than heard began to find physical shape in his mouth. Even as he still shook in Khadija's arms, 
Muhammad found his voice. And the first revelation of the Quran formed into words that another human being could hear. What had been breathed into him upon the mountain was now breathed out to take its place in the world. And now I'd like to look at just a tiny point of that place in the world, in today's world. Specifically, in New Zealand, and very recently, just a few weeks ago. Now, when I lived in Jerusalem, we used to think of New Zealand as this immensely peaceful place where nothing ever happened, where there were more sheep than people, and everybody was just so very, very nice to each other. And it turns out, of course, that um, New Zealand is inhabited by human beings, and it's not quite so. Uh, in fact, definitely not so when it comes to uh, a certain gentleman who some of you may have heard of, a member of parliament called Richard Prosser, a new member of parliament from a right-wing party, uh, quite right-wing. Um, in fact, he'd previously advocated banning the hijab and also compulsory arming of bank tellers and taxi drivers. In other words, this guy's pretty far out there on the right. Well, Mr. Prasa is not terribly well-traveled, as you might imagine. So one time when he was taking an airplane from the South Island to the North Island of New Zealand, he was asked, as everybody is, to check his pocket knife. And Mr. Prasa, apparently not having taken an airplane in a long time, lost his temper at this. And um, his knife wasn't confiscated, by the way. It was simply put in his checked luggage, but never mind. He went home and he wrote a screed, a diatribe, in his monthly column, the weekly column, I think it was. Uh, it was uh, one of those classic Islamophobic diatribes, right, in which uh, anybody Muslim from what was, was from what he called Wagistan, Wag coming, you know, being an old racist uh, British epithet for anybody whose skin was anything less than lily white. Uh, and that all young Muslim men, he said, oh, Islam, of course, was a Stone Age religion, and all young Muslim men should be banned from air travel, banned from getting on an airplane, so that Richard Prosser would not have to check his pocket knife. The reaction was huge. Remember, this was not a private citizen, this was a member of parliament speaking. The vituperation, the screeds against him, the things he was called, redneck, bigot, and so on and so on, words that I certainly can't use here. Condemnation from the Prime Minister of New Zealand, condemnation from the United Nations, calls for him to be expelled from Parliament, and everything you would expect, and I have to confess, my first impulse was to just join in, full-throated and totally denouncing this guy, in righteous and rightful indignation. But the fact is that none of this made much impact on him. I mean, he did the usual sort of pro forma apologies. Well, he was tired, he hadn't slept in a few. Perhaps he could have phrased it differently. One tries to imagine ways in which he could have phrased it differently that would not have been quite so racist and bigoted, but my imagination fails. Uh, and then, a young Muslim couple living in Auckland, Harir Wahab and Jason Kennedy, Jason, a convert, took a very different tack. At least on the surface, they were a very ordinary young couple 
with her own jewelry and design store. So remember St. Paul's, the letter kills, the spirit gave life, gives life. Actually, they turned that around completely and they wrote a letter full of spirit, an open letter, which was published in the New Zealand Herald, signed by uh, Jason, though written by them both. Uh, so I'd like to read you, all these pieces of paper here, I'd like to read you just the beginning, and the, it's a long letter, so I'll read it, I'll spare you, I'll read you just the beginning there, if I can find the beginning. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have a slide from them, but they're a lovely little thing. Dear Mr. Prosser, and this was an open letter published in the New Zealand Herald. Unbeknown to myself, says Jason, I am your enemy. I consider this strange as I've never met you and harbor no ill will toward you. I'm certain that if I walked past you on the street, your suspicions would not be raised. If you were a customer in my shop, I'm certain you would not suspect that I pose your family any risk, for you see, I am Muslim, I am 30, and I'm also white. Throw in the fact that I'm an, ex an American expatriate, accent and all, and I possess quite a subterfuge. After all, I could sit next to you on a flight, our, arm, our arms negotiating the armrest for space, and you would think nothing of it. And yet if, between us, the subject of religion arose, my reply would disable you with fear. This is how the letter ends. If you think supporting terror is somehow intrinsic to Islam, or is somehow an inevitability of our religion, ask anyone in the Muslim community here. No one supports any act of violence or terror against any other living being, human, or animal. That is what we call haram in Islam, which means forbidden by God. We have no support for terrorists who do such horrible things and we cannot understand how they call themselves Muslim. In order to establish better communication with this on this issue, my wife and I would like to invite you to dinner at our place the next time you're in Auckland. So yes, they invited the bigot to dinner. And the bigot came to dinner. Richard Prosser turned up at their door with flowers and chocolate. And they spent the evening. And Herrera, whom I know from Facebook, this was part of what she posted about it. There were two main themes for the evening. First, just as we believe that Islam should not be judged as a whole by the actions of any individuals, Richard Prosser should not be judged as a whole by one or two poorly chosen remarks. Second, much good can come from what has, up to now, been egregious. And this I find particularly impressive. Richard did say, interestingly, that of all the male comments, etc., and it was huge news in the of all the male comments, etc., he received from people following the article, that is the article that he wrote, his screed, our letter by far made him feel worse than all the others. He finds himself to be a person who can deal with anger and resentment being directed towards him. In other words, he's fine with that. But he felt out of place dealing with outreach born of love and a desire for understanding. 
I find this fascinating. This is what he couldn't handle. This was what threw him for a love, for, for a loop, love and understanding. So we discussed the need for some good to come, of, the need for some good to come of what has ultimately been an unattractive couple of weeks. And Jason and I took the time to thank Richard. Had it not been for his thoughtless outburst, we would not be sitting in our living room thinking of ways to make New Zealand better for Kiwis, native New Zealanders, and Muslims alike, and most importantly, acting on them. And they are acting on them. In fact, this very week, Jason and Kalea are meeting with Prasa, with the uh, New Zealand Department of Internal Affairs, to discuss actions, specific actions that they can take to improve relations between Muslims and non-Muslims in New Zealand. Um, Korea, by the way, oh, I forgot to mention this. Important details. She served tandoori chicken, salad, and roti. Right? <laughs> um, and it seems to me, obviously, that this is a tremendous tribute to the spirit of Muhammad himself. Because one of the main things that struck me as I was writing the first Muslims was Muhammad's extraordinary ability to turn what seemed to be disadvantaged to advantage. In a way, it's the story of his life. Born an outsider within the insider tribe of Mecca, he would ultimately become the ultimate insider. At perhaps the lowest point of his life, with both Khadija and his uncle Abu Talib dead within the same year, that is when the Isra comes, the night journey, when he literally soars. At another low point, his exile from Mecca. I know that Ishra is usually translated as emigration, but really it is exile. He is forced out of Mecca under threat of assassination. And how much more an outsider can become than an exile? In response to this, he created this whole new, extraordinarily idealistic community in Medina, essentially redefining the idea of a home. Because isn't this, after all, what we all want? Isn't that what Harea and Jason were talking about? Is to be at home together in neighborliness, in convivencia, in good faith. Thank you.